Well, guys, uh, this morning, we get to start a brand new sermon series. Uh, and this spring, we're going to be working our way through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. The gospel of Matthew is the first book of our New Testament. So uh, when you open it up, you're trying to, you know, it's a little bit more than halfway, three-fourths of the way you open it up. The beginning of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. And when I say we're going to be preaching through it, it means that every week throughout the spring, we're going to be going through a different chunk of scripture that comes out of this book. And we do that for a very specific reason, because we believe that God speaks to us through his word. Uh, and that we want to move through God's word in a very systematic way, then rather than me asking, what do I want to talk about this morning, that I get to come to God's word and say, God, this is the part of your word that we're talking about this morning, so what do you have to say to us through it? And we'll be doing that all throughout the spring through the book of Matthew. And I'm really excited that we're going to be in Matthew for a lot of reasons. One of them is that we were just in the book of Revelation, and it's a little bit crazy and kind of hard to preach. So I'm really looking forward to getting to be in the book of Matthew. Uh, also, uh, I'm excited because I'm excited to be looking very directly at the person and work of Jesus. And we are always talking about Jesus in here. Whether we're preaching from the Old Testament or the New Testament, we are always talking about Jesus because what we believe is that Jesus is the center of the biblical story. And yet, there's something that's really special about getting to open up God's word and look at what Jesus is, uh, what he's doing, what he's teaching, what he's preaching, what he's saying. I want to talk just for a minute about what the book of Matthew is, the gospel of Matthew is, that, that in a lot of ways, the gospel of Matthew, uh, it's a biography. And it was written, we think, uh, by a guy named Matthew, yes, okay? So all of the manuscripts that we have in the book of Matthew, all of the earliest manuscripts, they all start with the gospel of Matthew. That's how they're all titled and headed. That's what the early church called this book is the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And there are all kinds of theories about the book and when it was written and who it was written by, all that kind of stuff. But I think probably the clearest, uh, the clearest evidence for us is that this book was written by one of Jesus' followers, potentially even one of his uh, apostles or disciples, one of the people who spent the most time with him, and that it was written probably within 30 years of when Jesus uh, had ascended to heaven. So this is someone that Jesus knew intimately. But when Matthew was writing this book, he wasn't only relying on his own memories of what he'd experienced, that Matthew likely had other sources that he was looking at as he was compiling this biography. Like he probably had the book of Mark. He probably had a collection of sayings of Jesus. And because of when he wrote it, he probably also had interviews or conversations that he had had with other people that were an early part of that Jesus community that he was drawing from alongside of his own experiences. When you, even when you look kind of back at this time, we even have examples of people taking notes uh, when they are hearing someone important teach. Now, we don't have any of like Matthew's class notes about Jesus. But it's not a stretch to think that there could have been people in Jesus' early circle who were taking those kind of notes and that Matthew, who may have been a tax collector himself, could have done that himself. So this is someone who had very direct experience with Jesus who was pulling from all of that information to tell us what we need to know about who Jesus is. And if you've got more questions about where this gospel comes from, guys, if you know me, you know I would love to talk to you about it, okay? So you can hold those questions, talk to me afterwards, we'll grab coffee. But the gospel of Matthew, it's more than a biography. That's why the word gospel uh, is in its title. The gospel means good news. So it's the good news about Jesus according to Matthew. 
And this is a really weird title for a biography, isn't it? Like, I like to read biographies. Do any of you like to read biographies? A few heads nodding. Okay, cool. Uh, so, like, I read this biography of George Washington uh, at the beginning of the year. It was very long and probably unnecessarily detailed, but I enjoyed it. And when you get to the end of the biography, right, you see the back and you've got like the endorsements for the biography in case someone else wants to read it or what are people saying about the book. No one said on the back of the George Washington biography, uh, this book is really good news. No one said, it wasn't like the New York Times book review said, you've got to read this book because it'll change your life. If you read that on the back of a biography, you would think, oh, this probably has the wrong book jacket. Right? Like I get mixed up with something from the self-help section. Because that's not what a biography does, but this is more than a biography. Matthew wrote it on purpose because he believed that the person and work of Jesus was something that needed to be announced to the world, that had implications for the day-to-day lives of the people who would read it. And we get a sense of that at the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, gives his followers a mission. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That what Jesus says at the end of his ministry is he's inviting his followers to go out and help other people follow him. Saying, go go and let people know who I am and what I've done and invite them into this kingdom, invite them to be followers of me, and then teach them what it means to follow me. And Matthew's gospel This declaration of the good news of Jesus is one of the ways that Matthew is living out that call. He's saying if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to know who Jesus is, what he was like, what he did, where his authority came from, why he's someone that deserves to be followed. And in his gospel, he's showing us that. He's telling us that. And then once you come to Jesus, uh, the process of following him takes the rest of your life. It's a process of continual transformation more and more uh, into the image of Jesus. Well, how do we know how to do that? Matthew gave us this gospel that has more teaching of Jesus than any other of the gospels because he wanted us to know how to follow Jesus. That's what this book is about. It's to help introduce you to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. You're, you're exploring who Jesus is. You have questions about him. Man, this gospel is a perfect place for you to dive in because it's going to teach you and, and show you who Jesus is. And if you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're wondering, how do I do that? How do I continue to grow in that? This gospel is perfect. Because it was written that you could know and continue, uh, continually grow in your walk with Jesus and becoming more like Jesus. As this journey, what we're going to see this morning is this journey of knowing and following Jesus is a journey that we can only engage in from a place of faith. The journey of knowing and following Jesus is a journey that is grounded in faith. And what we'll talk about is the necessity of faith, the object of our faith, and the promises of faith that lead us here to this communion table. Okay, so the necessity of our faith, the object of our faith who is Jesus, and the promises of faith that lead us here to this communion table. And I just need you to know, as a moment of confession, I'm practicing faith in a very real way this morning because I lost my notes and I'm not sure where they are. (laughs) They're somewhere in this room. So if we get a little bit off track, you just got to go with me, okay? Because there's a whole exercise this morning. Oh, someone's got him in the back. Oh, praise God. Okay, well, you you can bring him up. Uh, Who knows? Yeah, we can clap for that, huh? Thank you, Addison. 
And praise God, because I was ready to just go no notes, people. So uh, we'll just say this is an object lesson in the fact that God will give you what you need in this journey of faith, right? Uh, but it is, it, thanks, Addison, it is uh, this journey that we're on, it is a journey of faith. That day in and day out, for us to be followers of Jesus means to put our trust uh, in someone outside of ourselves. So I'm going to invite Alicia Harrison to come up. Alicia is also going to be exercising faith this morning because she is reading for us the first chapter of the book of Matthew, which includes a very long genealogy and a lot of names. So thank you, Alicia. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Zechariah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thanks, Alicia. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Uh, guys, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, uh, Lord, and ask that as we spend even just a brief amount of time this morning uh, opening it or in studying it, um, Lord, hearing it preached and preaching it, that, that you'd be opening up our hearts and our minds to what you have for us in this journey of faith. And we pray this thing, we pray these things uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So guys, what we see in this passage uh, is that when Jesus enters our lives and we engage in this journey of faith, uh, that uh, we engage in this journey of following Jesus, uh, it requires faith. The journey of following Jesus is a journey of faith. And we see that so clearly uh, in this passage with Joseph. Imagine Imagine what this experience would have been like for Joseph. Right, that Joseph uh, is engaged to this woman, Mary. And in this time, marriages were things that uh, were, were organized by an entire family, by both families who had been so involved in this, uh, in this engagement. And the engagement was itself uh, a, legal, a, a legal contract. So there was no way that you could break it without there being a divorce. And so as they're planning and looking forward to this marriage, word comes to Joseph that Mary's pregnant. And for Joseph, finding this out would have totally disrupted his idea of what his life was going to look like. We talked about how it disrupted Mary's life and what she thought her life would look like when we preached through this passage during Advent. Because we get Mary's perspective of this in the Gospel of Mark, or excuse me, in the Gospel of Luke. But here in Matthew's Gospel, we get Joseph's perspective. And we know that that moment would have totally upended his idea of what his life was going to look like. He would have been incredibly embarrassed and incredibly ashamed. The passage tells us uh, in verse 20 that he considered these things. And that translation, he considered these things, is a very polite translation of those words. Because that same phrase, that as he considered these things, is the same phrase that's used to describe King Herod after the wise men, if you kind of know the story of the nativity, these wise men who come to see Jesus. And Herod says, "Uh, come back to me and tell me where Jesus is. And what he is planning is to, to kill this little baby king. And the wise men don't come back. And Herod finds out that he's been tricked. And it says that he considers these things. That Herod is in a rage because he has been deceived by the wise men. And he goes on a murderous rampage because of the things that he considered. Joseph is considering these things. That Joseph is probably welling up with, with anger at what he's experiencing in his life. Because this is not what he planned. Joseph in this passage is incredibly angry. Because Jesus coming into this world has brought chaos into his life. And so Joseph, like all of us, makes a plan for how to deal with the chaos and tamp it down and push it out. Though he resolves to divorce Mary. And the passage says he's going to do it quietly. Like he could put on this big show trial and basically get a refund. Right? That like there is a a bride price he had to give to Mary's family so that he could marry her for the honor and privilege of marrying her. 
But because she's broken this contract, if he's going to get that money back, what he's got to do is hold this trial where lots of people are going to come and bear witness to the fact that Mary has broken her vows. And Joseph has decided, I'm not going to do that to Mary. I'm not going to put Mary through that, but I am going to divorce her. And then into the middle of that situation, uh, Joseph has a dream. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And if it seemed like Joseph's life was going uh, not according to script before, what about now? That God coming into Joseph's life is totally blowing up his plan for what it's going to look like. Just think about what it would be like on an emotional level to say, okay, this woman that I've married, that I've kind of planned a future with that looks like all of my friends and like their lives have looked, like all of my family and like their lives have looked, is going to look incredibly different from all of them. That I'm going I'm to marry her and she's going to bigger child, but it's not my child that I'm going to raise for the rest of my life. Just wrestle with that for a minute. And then think about, okay, Joseph wakes up from having this dream and he goes into the family room because probably, he probably lives with, he's not like in a condo up by himself on the gulch. Like Joseph is living in his parents' house, right? So he has this dream and he wakes up and he comes and tells his parents, hey, remember that plan that we had to like divorce Mary quietly? That's off and we're gonna get married. Maybe his parents were super cool with it, Right? Maybe they weren't. Who knows? But you can, I can guarantee you that that was disruptive. It brought chaos into the life of their family, right? Into the life of the community that Joseph is now this target of, of shame uh, and, and ridicule from people around him because of what he is willfully, willingly stepping into. That's, and for Joseph, it doesn't end here. We're not going to talk about this specifically, but, but Joseph has another dream and is, and is told to take Mary and Jesus and flee into Egypt because of what Herod's going to do. So the Holy Family, they become refugees. And they flee to a land where they don't belong. That Joseph's life continues to be upended by Jesus coming into it. That living a life for faith of Joseph, for Joseph is incredibly disruptive. And guys, Joseph never even sees the promise realized. Now, he gets to name Jesus, and he spends a few years raising him, but by the time we fast forward in Jesus' story to when he's on the scene doing his ministry, Joseph is nowhere to be found. Joseph has in all likelihood died. So Joseph walks in faith with God. God has totally blown up his story, and he doesn't even get to see how it all ends. If you were here and you were a follower of Jesus, I hope that this passage terrifies you. Because it's terrifying, isn't it? What we so often want as Christians is what we so often want is for God to come along and bless our plans. Right? That we have an idea of how our life is supposed to go. We have an idea of how we want our life to go. And so we invite Jesus into our life and we say, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Now will you help me create the life that I want for myself? God is not interested in that plan. He's not. That God loves you far too much to get on board with your plan for your life that he's instead inviting you into this journey of faith where he is leading you into things that you could, you could never face if you knew they were coming, but he promises you, I will be with you and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be doing something in you in the midst of all the chaos.
that so shatters our expectations, even when we show up here on a Sunday morning, right? Where we like expect everything to follow a very precise script, and we can imagine that that is a life of following Jesus, and it's not. The journey of following Jesus involves uh, a lot of chaos. And, and what we all have to wrestle with in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is that uh, we are all putting our faith in something. That in the midst of a very chaotic world, all of us are putting our faith in something. And when I say faith, it can sound so kind of churchy or spiritual, but really when we're talking about faith, we're talking about trust. We're talking about putting our trust in something or in someone. We're putting our trust in something or someone that allows us to make decisions to say yes or no in spite of the fact that we have no idea what tomorrow brings. That's faith putting our trust in someone or something that allows us to move forward and to make decisions to say yes or no in the midst of the chaos despite the fact that we have no idea what tomorrow brings. Because our world is far more uncertain than we are willing to admit. Right, there are things that we know that we don't know. Known, unknowns. We don't know exactly what the weather will be tomorrow. We don't know exactly what the economy is going to do. Okay, we like know these things that are unknown. There are plenty of unknown unknowns, right? The things that we don't know that we don't know, the black swan events that always kind of come into our world that we could never have imagined and yet totally upend our plans. And we all have places that we place our faith in order to deal with those very uncertain events. For some of us, uh, we kind of separate faith and rationality as like two different things. And so the way that we approach the world, the faith, the faith that we have is a faith in, in rationality, a faith uh, in science. Have any of you ever seen the movie Nacho Libre? <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a guy in the movie who says, why do you keep judging me because I only believe in science? Right? It's this distinction between, between faith and rationality, uh, between, between faith and science. But here's the thing, guys. Uh, science itself is a kind of faith, isn't it? When, we, when we're talking about science, what we're talking about is the scientific method, this idea that there's uh, a question and a hypothesis, an experiment, and then a solution or a conclusion. And when we repeat that enough times, we'll get knowledge about what the world is like that we can act on and live on. Because how do we know that that is a rational way of engaging with the universe? How do we know that that method gives us a way of accurately understanding the world around us? Well, by the scientific method, right? So the way that we know it works is because it works. And that's not to dog science. Big science fan, okay? Very thankful for it. It's given us a lot of very helpful things. But all that to say that it is in itself a circular argument for knowing that there's a faith that we put in it. Of course, that's how the world operates. Not to mention that we put a lot of faith in the people who are doing the science on our behalf because many of us are not out there conducting the experiments ourselves. We're relying on them to give us reliable data, to report the results accurately. And on top of all of that, what we know is that science is really good at telling us about things like physics, and it's really bad at telling us about things like human nature. At the end of the day, when we're confronting the chaos in our lives, the scientific method doesn't have a lot to say about where it comes from other than, than saying, yes, that is true. The world is very chaotic. That's not a lot to hold on to. And so we go and look for all kinds of other people, other experts, other ways of dealing with the chaos that comes into our life that we can kind of control it. 
Now we could spend lots of time talking about that, whether it's the experts that you invite in through the algorithm on your phone, right? The books that you read. Maybe it's just crowds, crowdsourcing uh, kind of the, the wisdom of the people that are around us, like kind of taking the temperature of, well, how is everyone else dealing with this? And I think it's pretty safe to say, guys, that all those other things that we are putting our faith in aren't working very well. The kind of the predominant way of looking at the world is that we live in this meaningless cosmos, that science has told us that, that there's nothing outside of what can be measured that can be known and that is worth relying on. And so all we've got is this sense that we are all here by accident and be glad for the accident, that we're all moving toward absolutely nothing. And yet in the midst of that, we're told, have faith in that and then have faith in us and our ability to kind of pull it together and make it happen and make these life, this life meaningful in the meantime. And it's making us miserable and anxious and incredibly afraid and depressed. Yes, of course. The invitation in this passage is that we would put our trust, that we'd put our faith in something that's outside of ourselves, something is bigger than us and our own collective wisdom. That's what we're being called to. To live like we see Joseph living a life of faith in a God who is outside of us, who is bigger than us. And if we're being called to that kind of faith, we've got to ask, can that God be trusted? Is that kind of God worthy? Is the God that Scripture presents a God that is worthy of our faith and our trust? Because that's why I had Alicia read our genealogy, because the genealogy that we read in Matthew is a clear and resounding answer to that question. Yes, God can be trusted. It's significant that this genealogy starts all the way back with Abraham, because God made Abraham a promise. It's the very beginning of God's work to redeem his people. God makes a promise to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But here's the thing. Abraham was super old. He was super old when he got the promise. And his wife was super old when she got the promise. And it, Scripture tells us that uh, basically that it was impossible for them to have kids based on their age. They were just past it. And yet God made the promise anyway. And so Abraham, his, with his trust in that promise, leaves his home and goes and becomes a wanderer to a land that he doesn't know. It's an exercise of faith that God's going to fulfill his promise. And guys, that leaving of his home and going into a land that he doesn't know in hopes of an heir that it seems impossible to him, I'll just tell you, you can read Abraham's story in the book of Genesis. It invites all kinds of chaos into Abraham's life, especially when he starts taking that promise into his own hands and sleeps with his wife's servant. It invites a lot of chaos into the household. I can just tell you that. And yet what this genealogy shows us is that God is incredibly dedicated to fulfilling his promise. That God is working over centuries through the stories of all kinds of different men and women that God is working through all of those stories to bring about the fulfillment of his promise to bless the nations. God, he is willing and able. He delights to work in all kinds of situations that are incredibly broken. And we see that especially in the women that he chooses to include in this genealogy, which was a shocking thing for Matthew to do. 
Women never appeared in ancient genealogies, and Matthew was saying, no, 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 it's very important that you pay attention to the women that are in Jesus' genealogy because it teaches us something about this God who fulfills his promises. Like Rahab, this passage talks about Rahab the prostitute, a woman who ran a brothel. And there's this invading army, the Israelites, who are coming and are coming against her city, Jericho. And what Rahab knows is that the, their God, she doesn't know a lot about their God, but she knows that God is stronger than our God, and I'm going to put my faith in that God instead of my God. And so when the walls of Jericho come down and the city is invaded, she and her family is spared because of her willingness to take a risk and invite spies into her home before that invasion happens. It invited all kinds of chaos into, into Rahab's life, into a life that was already very chaotic. And yet through Rahab's story, God was working, God was working, God was working, God was working. It's true with Ruth who we see in this passage, right? This woman who marries a foreigner who's come from a distant land, this land called Israel that she's kind of heard about, and then her husband dies, and then her brother-in-law dies, and then her father-in-law dies, and she's left alone, and so she clings to her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law says, I'm over it, I'm going back to Israel. And Ruth says, take me with you. To this place that I have no idea, this place I have no idea about, this place that I've never been, this place whose customs and religion and God are strange to me, I want that God to be my God. I want your people to be my people. I will go with you wherever you go. That Ruth walks into this crazy amount of chaos and faith. And God works through her story. She's in this genealogy because through, through Ruth's trust in a God that she barely knows, God is working to bring his promise to bear. That's the kind of God that we worship. This God who through centuries of fulfilling a promise of keeping this line alive finally and, and fully comes in himself among us. That's, that was shocking to a first century Jew, the idea of the incarnation, that God with us meant that God would actually take on a body and come among us. That's the, the miracle of the virgin birth. It shocks us. It shocked Joseph and his family even more. On a biological and a theological level, it was shocking to them. And yet that was God's way of fulfilling his promise. That the blessing that God had planned for the world was him coming amongst his people himself and coming as a person, as a person who knows everything about what it is like to live in the midst of the chaos of being a human. That the God that we worship, the God that says you can trust me, that I'm faithful to my promise is not only the God who has worked across centuries to bless the world, but a God who has come amidst all of our chaos and says to you, I know exactly what it is like to live right where you're living. And I came here to live with you in the midst of it because I wanted you to know that I love you and that I'm here with you. That's the God that we're being invited to trust, to put our faith in. It's a sure place. And we learn two things about Jesus' mission from this passage. First, we learn from his name, Jesus, that he'll save his people from their sins. And second, that he'll be called Emmanuel, which, mean God, which means God's with us that he will save his people from their sins and that people will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. As in those two promises, that Jesus will save his people from their sins and that he is Emmanuel, God with us, is what brings us to the communion table this morning. 
Then we come to the communion table, we come in faith in those two promises, that God will save his people from their sins and that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. Because when we come to the communion table, what we admit is that we are sinners. And even that admission is, is itself one that takes faith, isn't it? Because when I'm left by myself, I'm like, well, I'm not really that bad. I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, I like X, Y, Z, but you know, I took this personality test, and of course I'm that way, right? Look at my parents, of course. What, what else do you expect? I've got all kinds of reasons, and we've all got all kinds of reasons that we share with each other to convince ourselves that we're not really sinners in need of a Savior. It takes faith for us to acknowledge, actually, we're far more broken than we are willing to admit to ourselves. Save his people from their sins. Again, we're willing to say, Jesus, yes, come in and make my life better. Yes, Jesus, come in and bless me. Yes, Jesus, give me what I want. Help fulfill my plans for my life. Jesus, come save me from my sin. Wow. Sure, if I have to say yes to that to get all the other stuff. I say, no, no, no. One of, the, one of the ways that we know how much Jesus loves us is that one of his biggest priorities is to save us from our sin. But it is one of the best things, it is the best thing that Jesus can do for us is to save us from our sin. To wake us up and say, do you realize how broken you actually are? That he would wake us up to that and say, right in that spot, I want you to know that right there, you are more loved than you could ever imagine. That your Jesus is not asking you to clean yourself up, to get better, to get to a certain point of holiness before you can come here and meet with him. He's saying, no, I want you to come just as you are with all of that sin and all of that brokenness and bring it here to me. That the communion table is a place that we cry out and that we acknowledge, Jesus, I am so broken. I'm, I'm sorry for the ways I've sinned against you. Will you save me? That's what we're doing when we come to the table. It's a table of repentance. And guys, when you, when you come to the table this morning, I would encourage you to ask, God, what are the sins in my life that you're asking me to repent of? Because we can talk about like broad strokes, we're all sinners, right? But what about specifically? Like, what does sin look like in your life? Maybe even specifically, what has sin looked like in your life this week? Like, God, I'm sorry for being selfish. Here's how I was selfish. Oh, God, I'm sorry for being prideful. Here's how I was prideful. God, I'm sorry for hating people in my heart. Well, I don't really hate anybody. We do, okay? And here are the people I've hated, and here's how I have wounded them with my words, either into their faces or behind their back. God, I'm sorry. God, I have judged other people. I've put myself in your position in their lives. God, I'm sorry. God, I've been greedy. I'm sorry. God, I've been lustful. I'm sorry. But this is the place that we come and say to God, God, I'm sorry. And the more specific as you will be, I will tell you, there's so much freedom there in that. To realize that Jesus says to those very specific sins, you are forgiven. That this table is a place that we come and we, we practice the fact that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. And this table is also the place that we come to remember that God is with us. When we take the bread and the, and, and the juice, we're, we're getting a physical, uh, these physical elements that remind us that Jesus is with us and that here at the communion table, he comes to nourish us and to lead us in this journey of faith. There are so many decisions that you guys are being called into day in and day out, decisions that feel big, decisions that feel very small, and we're wondering, God, what does it look like to walk in those decisions in faith? And what we are often hoping for is that God will give us a dream like Joseph, right? 
God, if you would just give me a dream where you show up and you tell me very clearly what to do, I promise I will do it. Friends, I'm just going to tell you after walking with Jesus for as long as I have, uh, which is not as long as some of you, for the record, it's very rare that Jesus shows up in dreams and tells us what to do. That more often, the day in and day out practice of following Jesus is being in his word, praying, asking for wisdom from God's word and from the people around you, and then making the best decision with the information that you have. That's faith, people. And we get all freaked out because it's scary. Absolutely it's scary because we don't know where it's going to go. But what we do know is the one who stands behind all of the chaos in our lives. And it's the Jesus who invites us to this table and promises you, I will meet you here. I will be with you here. And I will be with you as you go out. That's our Jesus. That's the Jesus we're coming to meet here at this table. So I'm going to tell you how we're going to come and meet him at the table this morning. Uh, the band's going to play several songs. So there'll be time for you to stand up line up in the middle, and you come and you kneel at the kneelers. Believe it or not, you can fit like four people in most times. So there are a lot of us. So just get cozy, okay? Uh, and pray. This is a place uh, where you can interact with Jesus. And when you're ready to take the elements, just hold out your hands. And the servers uh, will serve you. They'll put the bread and the juice in your hands, and you can take it when you're ready. And then when you're done, you go up the sides, go back to your seat. If you want one of the servers up here to pray for you, just cross your arms over your chest and they'll pray for you right where you are. If you need someone to remind you that Jesus saves sinners, that God is with you, happy to do that. As you go back to your seat, you can take a, take a prayer or leave a prayer at our board back there. Write something that you want someone else to pray for you. Take someone else's prayer, pray for them. And guys, as we come to the table, uh, the scriptures demand that I give you a warning. And what they say is that uh, if you are not, a, uh, if you have not already put your faith in Jesus, that this table is not for you yet. It's for people who are coming by faith. So you're welcome to come up here. You're welcome to kneel. You're welcome to cross your arms and receive prayer. But would ask that you don't take the elements yet because the elements are to be taken in faith. And if you are here and you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time and there are parts of your life where you were saying to Jesus, you can have all of me except that part of me, then this table is not for you right now. Because when we come in faith, we're coming with all of ourself. And if, if you're willing to come and say, Jesus, you can have all of me, then come on. In the midst of your doubts, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sin, bring it all up here because Jesus wants to meet you in it. Because Jesus will meet you in it. I'm going to read for you uh, just a little, bit on, a little bit later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' words about this table. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again to this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let me pray for us, and then let's come to the table together. Jesus, I are so grateful that you have come, Lord, to save us from our sins. 
Lord, we come to you this morning confessing that we are a people who so often put our faith in so many other places and so many other people. And yet, Lord, in this moment of clarity, this moment of sanity, having our minds directed by your word, Lord, we recognize that you alone uh, are worthy uh, of our trust, of our faith. And so uh, we ask and trust you to meet us this morning as we come to the table. Or would you be gentle to us as you remind us of our sin where we get to experience uh, your faithfulness and your grace as you remind us uh, that as much as we confess that we are forgiven, uh, Lord, and would you meet us with a fresh experience of, uh, of you being Emmanuel, God with us. When we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.